reading this morning is from Hebrews chapter 1, verses 1 through 3. You can find this in the Pew Bible on page 1187. Hear the word of the Lord. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. This is the word of the Lord. So at my house, when we have a a birthday, we hang up a happy birthday banner in the living room. And the, the banner stays up all week. We don't just celebrate the birthday, we celebrate the birth week, which makes sense because birthdays are a lot of fun. All week long, people have been celebrating Joan Clover's birthday, bringing her flowers and taking her to lunch and stopping by with cupcakes and balloons. There was a party after choir uh, on Thursday. Last night, Joan, I stopped by the office to do a little bit of work, and I couldn't find a place to park because so many people had come to your house. It was a huge party upstairs. Uh, We will continue to celebrate Joan's uh, birthday. Each of you has your reasons why you love and appreciate Joan. I want to just mention two uh, that are on my heart this morning. Uh, Every weekday morning, I bring my daughter to me, um, daughter Mia, to school here at Valley Christian School. And generally, we arrive pretty early and we hang out in my office until it's time uh, to go to school. But my 12-year-old daughter always wants to go upstairs to hang out with Grandma Joan. Now think about this for a second, people. If you are 90 years old and a 12-year-old still clamors to hang out with you, you have lived well. You are a special person. We're coming up on the second anniversary of the great COVID shutdown. Keeping this church open and moving has been a struggle as it seems that the forces of nature and the forces of society have been hell-bent on shutting us down. Whole Foods is packed. The Bonefish Grill is a non-stop party of unmasked, boozy suburbanites. But God forbid that we should go to church. That's just too, too dangerous. Thank you all, you risky thrill-seekers, for being here with me this morning. You know who has been in this sanctuary every Sunday since the COVID shutdown began in both services? A great-grandmother in her ninth decade named Grandma Joan. I remember back to those earliest days. Every Sunday. Every Sunday in every service. I remember back to the early days before we had a vaccine, before normal people could even get those masks. I remember I had to go to Karen near Jesse to, to borrow my first mask because you couldn't buy them at that time. For 11 weeks, our sanctuary was closed and a small group of staff and volunteers would gather here each day to produce the webcast for our congregation. It was very dark and very weird times. But part of the lightness and part of the sanity for those of us who were just trying to get through it all was Joan Clover. She was bustling around, doing whatever 
needed to be done, wiping down surfaces with Lysol and a cleaning rag, hoping that that might help a little bit. Just having you present, Joan, was the biggest help. Maybe you killed a few germs, I don't know. (laughs) Nothing wrong with that. But your love of people and your commitment to your relationships, even when things were dangerous, was our biggest help. We needed you, Joan, and you were a friend in need. So happy birthday, Joan Clover. I'm happy you were born. You mean so much to so many people here in this church and in the community. Now, I also want to talk about another big day that happened this past week. It was a moving day. Pastor Bruno, confirming, he did move. Pastor Bruno and his family moved out, okay, to their new house. They're in Abington Township. They were looking for a place in Abington Township so their kids wouldn't have to change schools again. After what must have seemed like 40 years of wandering in the wilderness. You may remember that we had anticipated that Pastor Bruno and his family would arrive in Philadelphia more than a year ago. In January 2021, he had been called to lead Fellowship Presbyterian Church, which is the new church plant that we're doing here at Huntington Valley Presbyterian Church, but the problem was COVID again. COVID in Brazil. It was so bad down there that all of the consular offices were closed and he couldn't get an appointment to get the visa to come here. And he's waiting and he's waiting and he's waiting for weeks, for months. And finally Bruno said enough and he got on a plane with his family and he flew to Colombia where things weren't quite so bad. And the offices of the U.S. government were open, and he was able to get his appointment. But then there was other problems, and for six weeks, he and his family are living in a hotel room in Bogota. Every day, they're hoping for good news, waiting and waiting and waiting. And finally, four months ago, Bruno and his family arrived. But they weren't home yet. Fellowship Presbyterian Church thought they had their housing arranged for them, uh, but there were some difficulties and that fell through. And so Sue and Jimmy Belinsky invited Bruno and his wife and their three children to come stay with them for a few days until they got things sorted out. Well, a few days turned into four months, which probably was a blessing and a curse. On the curse side, there is our own Benjamin Franklin, who observed guests like fish begin to smell after three days. And on the blessing side, we have Hebrews 13.2, which says, Do not forget to show hospitality to strangers. I wanted to say something about this big day, this moving day, because we as Christians should be eager to show hospitality. We should open our homes to welcome people, maybe just for a cup of coffee or for dinner, but maybe for a longer time too, maybe for several months. At our house, which is an old house and not a big house, we have had guests living with us for years at this point. Sometimes one, sometimes two, sometimes three people added to our little family there. We still only have one bathroom. Why is hospitality important? Well, because our God is a hospitable God. Our God is a relational God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, forever together, forever loving. Our faith is a relational faith. 
By faith in Jesus Christ, I've become a child of God. I'm no longer a stranger or an enemy to God. And when we live out our faith, it means we form, we cultivate, we nurture relationships. Now here's the thing about relationships. They're hard. Relationships take time and energy. A relationship requires that I open my mind and my heart to another person and try to understand things from their point of view. A relationship requires that I don't get things my way all of the time. Those are all lessons in Christian living. Just having a relationship, maintaining a relationship, is a spiritual discipline. And it begins with hospitality. One of the most basic lessons that we try to teach toddlers is to share. It's a hard lesson. It's harder than the quadratic equation. It's harder than learning to play the piano. I want those Lego blocks, but Sally wants them too. Why should I curb my desires? Why should I not give myself what I want just because silly Sally wants it too? And oh, she only wants it because she saw me playing with it. It's hard to share. We adults have a hard time sharing too. And we may be worse than children. One of the reasons we love to live in our bubbles is because, and whether that bubble is your private car rather than using public transit, or your suburban house with your moat of lawn around it, or your exclusive club that keeps out the riffraff, one of the reasons that we love our bubbles is because we don't have to share. We get it our way. Which, of course, is what every toddler wants. And part of growing up and part of becoming fully human and part of living into the image of God is that we are able to sustain relationships. Relationships are hard. Because relationships require, more often than we want, to say no to ourselves. And yet, our greatest satisfaction comes when we do say no to ourselves. It's a great mystery. It's totally perplexing, of course, to the lost world, which thinks that looking out for number one is the way to go. What Jesus said was, take up your cross and follow me. What Jesus says was, whoever wants to save his life must lose it, but whoever loses his life for me will save it. Jesus says it's better to give than to receive. This is contrary to what the world teaches. Hospitality is a great way to give. Because we're not just giving money, it's easy to give money. But because we're actually giving ourselves, our space in our house, our attention, we're giving part of our limited time, we're all very busy people. This is what we do when we extend hospitality. And please don't make the excuse that my house is a mess. Everyone's house is a mess. I mentioned to Sue that I wanted to say something about this transition at her house. But after having Bruno and his family there for four months, things were going to be a little bit quiet. And Sue was not happy about having me say something. You know her. You know that she serves quietly behind the scenes. You know that she does not seek the praise of people. She does not want to be held up as some kind of moral exemplar. She wasn't very keen on this idea of me saying something about Belinsky hospitality, but I need to say it anyway. Not because the Belinskys are some kind of super saints, 
but because hospitality is central to the Christian life. 1 John 4.20 says, If we do not love people, how can we say that we love God whom we haven't seen? It's a good question, actually. And we can ask the correlated question, because love is a kind of a relationship. If I don't have relationships with people that I can see, how can I have a relationship with God whom I can't see? Now, I'm not saying that hospitality is a good work and that it will earn your entrance into heaven. What I am saying is that hospitality and openness to relationships and all of the complications that comes with that, I'm saying that hospitality is a barometer of our Christian faith. If I have no relationships with other people, how can I say that I have a relationship with God? If I have trouble maintaining relationships with people, maybe I need a tune-up in my relationship with God. So I want us to think about hospitality. Think of it as a spiritual discipline. Think of it as central to your Christian life. Think about opening your hearts and your homes. Thank you for opening your wallets, but open your homes too. All right, I talked about Sue, I talked about Joan. They're both in the same row. Deb, you want to go next? (laughs) Actually, I want to talk about sin. Okay. (laughs) All right. I got to talk about sin. I want to talk about sin and creation. Let me get a drink here. John has a system worked out for me where he's going to tell me to pull the plug on this sermon. All right. I want to talk about creation and sin. This is our seventh sermon in this creation series. And our reading this morning that Jordan did, thank you for doing that reading, uh, links creation and sin. Here's what that Bible says about Jesus in that, that little opening passage from Uh, Hebrews chapter 1. God the Father appointed Jesus the heir of all things. He gets inherited all. By the way, we're joint heirs with Jesus. Just to let you know what your future holds. God the Father created the universe through Jesus. Jesus is the radiance and the glory of God the Father. Jesus is the exact imprint of God's person. That's the word there in the Greek. Jesus upholds the universe by the word of his power. That's what we're going to be preaching on next week. Jesus made purification for sins. And then after all of that, he sat down at the right hand of God the Father. What I want you to notice this morning is this link between Jesus as the creator and Jesus as the purifier. I am afraid that I have tested the patience of some of you preaching six and now seven sermons on the doctrine of creation way too theoretical way too theological way too philosophical not at all practical according to some people I come to church to hear a word about how to live my life and for six and seven weeks now you're preaching about the origins of the universe how's that going to help me well bear with me for just a few more minutes and hear this basic principle 
It's a philosophical principle. Our vision of reality, for you wonks, our ontology, our vision of reality determines our vision of morality. Action. In fact, I want you to say that with me. Our vision of reality determines our vision of morality. That's why theoretical things like ontology count, the nature of reality counts. It seems abstract, but really it's practical because your action is based upon how you view the world, how you see the world. Let me give you two examples. This is Black History Month. Thank you, Carter Woodson. Black History Month is the time when we think about the accomplishments of black people in the United States, but we also think about the history of slavery and Jim Crow in the United States. For us these days, it's hard to wrap our mind around the idea that people once thought that it was okay to take a really big ship and sail to a foreign country and to kidnap a bunch of people and then to return to your country with those people and then to make their children and their children's children, your property, body and soul, and all of the fruits of their labor to belong to you forever just because you kidnapped them. For us, it seems like a bizarre idea. And yet, not so long ago, by the way, I knew a woman, my great-grandmother, who knew slaves. So it's not been that long ago. I knew people who knew slaves Not so long ago, the idea actually seemed perfectly obvious to some people. Some otherwise sane and rational people. Some people who might have been nice in many different kinds of ways. Why was it possible to think that morality? Why was it possible to think that it was okay to kidnap people and to enslave them? Well, because our vision of reality determines our vision of morality. And the people who thought that it was okay to make slaves of other people did not see the reality of the personhood of those other people. Slavers and slave traders and slave owners did not see enslaved people as people. Once I see the reality that the person I've enslaved is a human being like me, it becomes impossible for me to keep him as a slave. There's no need for a law or even a war to force me to free him. As soon as I realize, oh, you're a person. My own moral sense forces me to see him as an equal. My vision of reality, the personhood of that other person, determines my vision of morality. How am I going to treat them? If I'm blind to the humanity, to the personhood of another person, then there's no moral issue for me in buying or enslaving them. Just as I have no moral problem in buying or using the labor of a horse, which is not a person. Oppression requires that we not think of the person whom we oppress as a real person. Oppression is not a moral failure. It's a failure to understand reality correctly. And the struggle for equality has always been a struggle to get people to see the reality, the humanity of the oppressed person. The slogan of the 17th century British abolition movement was, Am I not a man? And a brother. 
You maybe remember Sojourner's truth of uh, uh, version of this same phrase. Ain't I a woman? Once a person sees that a slave is a man and a brother, once he sees that reality, it becomes impossible to abuse that person. For a very long time, African Americans in this country have struggled just to be seen for who they really are. Just ordinary people. Our vision of reality determines our vision of morality. Let me give you a second example. Abortion. An abortionist must insist that a fetus is not a person, not a human being, like himself. Only a monster would say, oh, sure, a fetus is a person, but I think it's a good idea to kill it anyway. No one ever says that. What they say is, a fetus is not a person, it's just a blob of protoplasm. It's just a lump of cells. Let me show you a lump of cells. Ain't I a man? A number of states require that abortion providers do a sonogram and offer the mother an opportunity to see the child. Why? Well, anyone who has ever seen their child in utero on a sonogram, you know it's pretty hard to deny the humanity and the independent existence of that person swimming around. It's a baby. It's small, but it's a person. Of course, pro-abortion activists hate those kinds of laws. They hate anything that humanizes the unborn child. Why? Because your vision of reality determines your vision of morality. And if your vision of reality changes, your morality will change, and they don't want to change. We need to get our vision of reality right if we're going to live right. And the doctrine of creation is all about reality, fundamental reality. How did it all get here? Is the universe self-made? Or did someone outside of the universe make it? How did life emerge? Is it random? Or is it designed and intentional? And if it's designed, who is the designer? When we get our vision of reality right, our vision of morality will be just fine. Let me offer a few points here. I see my time ticking out. If God made you, then you are his property. You do not own yourself. Your body is not your property. You don't get to do with it what you want. Okay? You're a steward of it. You get to use it. You got to turn it back in at the end. Your life and your breath and your years belong to God too. They're not yours. You get to steward them, but you're using them on behalf of the maker, the owner. If God is the creator, he's also the Lord of the manor. He's the owner of everything he sees. If God made you, then he is within his rights to set the rules of your conduct. If God is the creator, he's also the lawmaker. The silly myth that the world is uncreated has huge logical and scientific problems with it. But it does have this advantage. It allows me to do whatever I want. 
Because if there is no God, then I can be king. If God's choice isn't sovereign, then my choice is. It is, of course, within our power to reject God's reality. That's called sin. And every single person in this room is in the same boat with regard to sin. Every one of us is guilty of rejecting what God has created, of trying to be our own little God, of rejecting what God has ordained and what God has commanded because we want to be the leaders. I believe that every person knows in their heart of hearts that there is a God. And I believe that those who claim to be atheists are just whistling in the dark. Because they know the wrath of God is coming. They desperately want to believe there is no God because somehow they know that they're not in a state of grace. That God's wrath has been stored up for them. They know that, which is why they strike out in such fury against the very idea of God. I get it psychologically. It annoys me as a philosopher because it's intellectually dishonest, but I get it psychologically. Denying the reality of God because you don't like what follows logically from it is a little like denying the reality of cancer because you don't like what follows logically from that disease. Just because you don't like God doesn't mean there is no God. What the Bible teaches is is that Jesus is the creator, which is weird. But here's the really weird part. Jesus is also the purifier of sinners. Jesus is the only reason I have any hope of surviving the righteous wrath of God. Jesus has purified me. You have no idea of the depths of my sin, of the perversity of my nature. But Jesus has purified me. We gather this day in this place to worship a God who has made this world and to sing His praises for saving us too. If you do not yet know Jesus as your Lord and Savior, if you know about Him but you've not committed yourself to Him, I ask you to do that today. You can know about Jesus and not be a Christian. You can admire Jesus and not be a Christian. Lots of atheists love the Sermon on the Mount. By the way, I'm preaching on the Sermon on the Mount at the 5 o'clock service. You want to come out. You haven't had enough preaching. 5 o'clock. Let me close with a word of prayer. Lord Jesus, we love you and we honor you. And we're looking forward to seeing you. We thank you for making this world and making it beautiful. We thank you that you have ordained its structure. And that you've given us a law that produces life. Forgive us for fighting you tooth and nail on what you make so clear in Scripture. Forgive us for our stupid excuses. Give us the faith that we need. Purify us. Amen.